1 Timothy chapter 1, the whole chapter, and we'll also be reading over the page, chapter 6, verses 2b to the end of the letter, verse 21. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And over the page, chapter 6, verse 2b. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. 
But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom on no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And I keep your Bibles open in 1 Timothy, and there are some headings on the back of the service sheet that'll help us. Let's pray, though, for God's help. Our Father, we pray that you would speak to us from your word. This is Christ's word through his appointed messenger, the Apostle Paul. Help us to hear not a preacher, nor even the Apostle, but Jesus Christ himself, the King and Head of this and every church. For we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, two things I want to do this morning, one really quickly and the other one much more carefully. I want to begin by spending a few minutes to help us get our bearings in this letter, and then we teach chapter 1. So, four headings under getting our bearings in 1 Timothy. It is, as we have already explained, the motto series for 2018, when as a whole church we study the same material together Sundays and in small groups. And that runs right through all our small group structure, from our teenagers uh, right up to our seniors' groups. And kind of encourage us also to spend time personally reading and studying this uh, letter. Now, why are we doing this all together? It is a very important New Testament letter about what it means to be a local church. 
And all Christians are called to play their part in building up the body of faith that is the local church. We are called to teach and encourage and exhort one another. And this letter is well chosen as a model series for that end and to that purpose. Why 1 Timothy? Let me say a little more on that. Now, as a church family, we have much to be thankful for in our new home in Morningside here. And it is a good moment for us together to look at the New Testament's teaching on how we should behave as God's church, his household, and his pillar of truth. And as we look ahead to 2018 and beyond, what is our God-given role in this community and in the city? What should our priorities be? What should be taught? What should not be taught? How should we pray? How should we organize our leadership structures? How should we care for the needy? How should we behave? All of these questions are addressed in 1 Timothy, God's instruction for getting church fit for purpose. Now, as elders, we have been studying 1 Timothy for six months. And over that time, God has prayerfully convicted us that this book, which is the key New Testament book on what it means to be a local church, will shape us and encourage us, God willing, for years to come. In our generation, we want to be good stewards of what God has given us and pass that on. There are a million books out there on what it means to be a local church. The best book is the book in the Bible that is most clear and relevant on what it means to be a local church. 1 Timothy is that thick, and that's the book you want on your bookshelf about the local church. Why? Because it is Christ's words through his apostle to the local church. And so when you listen to these sermons, or when you listen to Bible studies in your small groups, you're not listening to the preacher. You're listening not even to the apostle. You're listening to Christ, whose words they are. Why do we have preachers? Why do we have small group leaders? Because they know us, and they apply these words in particular ways. Now, the historical setting of 1 Timothy, every Bible book is written for a particular time and for a particular reason. Uh, when you write a letter, you write for a reason. All uh, people under the age of 18 are being pressurized at this time by their parents to get the thank you letters away before the end of January. We are 10% there. Um, and of course, a letter is written for a reason, and it's important that we understand that in our hands here, in this little letter, it's a letter written to a church for a reason. It's from Paul the Apostle, and of course, behind him, the Lord Jesus. It's to Timothy, whom he describes as my true child in the faith. Timothy was Paul's apprentice, his son in the faith, his co-author, his troubleshooter, his ambassador, his envoy, his church planter, and he is the leader of the church in Ephesus. And the letter is for the church via the minister. That's a, a good way to think of it. The you in chapter 6, verse 21, right at the end of the letter, is all of you, plural. 
Now, this letter has specific things to say to the church in Ephesus, but when you pick up 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or Titus, written at the transition from the apostolic era to the first generation, if you like, of Christian ministers or local Christian churches, we can take what they say by way of principles with a straight line and apply it to our situation. We may find that the issues in the church in Ephesus are not the issues that we have here, but the principles are absolutely uh, applicable. Now, what's the main message of 1 Timothy? What's the thrust of the letter? Now, we need the letter to tell us that. So, turn in your Bibles for it to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The flicking of pages is noisier in service one, and I, I, take, I take it that many of you are electronic, I hope. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13, verse 14 rather, I hope to come to you soon, now here's the key to the letter, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so as we study this letter, and this is great, I mean, it really is helpful, we will learn how we ought to behave in this church, in this church, Chalmers. And notice I didn't say in our church, because it's not ours. It's God's. It is the household, what does Paul write? Of God. It is the church of the living God. And what is at stake? What is the purpose of the church? It is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is not held up by truth. The church is what holds up truth in the culture and in society. And so in Edinburgh, the local church is to be the pillar and buttress of the truth, to hold on to, to hold fast to, to hold up and to hold out the truth of the biblical gospel. And that is why we have called the series A Church Fit for Purpose. Now, every single sermon in the series, every single Bible study, I want these questions to be asked. I want you to scribble these things in your notes, etch them on your heart. How can we, as a church, be more fit for purpose? How are we, as a church, fit for purpose? What does it mean to be fit for purpose? And then even more applied, how can we, as a small group, make charmers more fit for purpose? How can I, as an individual, make charmers more like what God says or Christ says through his apostle, the church should be like? And these are good questions to ask. And here's the deal. When we find that the answers to these questions are different from what we are doing, then we need to change. And I expect there will be a fair bit of changing required of us. Now, if verses 14 to 15 of chapter 3 are the key. The rest of the letter takes its shape from that central conviction. And here's a slide that makes it all as clear as mud. There we go. 
Now, you see the heart of the letter, 314 to 15. Um, you don't want to read too much into this, but basically the frame, there's the heart of the letter. Um, surrounding the heart of the letter, there's a bit on godly leadership. Surrounding the bit on godly leadership, there's a bit about godliness in the church. And then the two bookends, the beginning and the end, guard the gospel and teach the gospel against all else. Hold on to the real gospel. Now, that's uh, pretty quick, getting our bearings. One minute quicker, I think, than service one, which makes me think I've missed something out. Let's get stuck into chapter one. So have that open in front of you, please. Now, the main point of chapter one, thank you. Let's uh, take the slide down. The main point of chapter one is guarding and teaching the real gospel, the real biblical gospel of sinners saved. Guarding it against any kind of teaching that distracts from or distorts the gospel message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's the big point of chapter one, guarding and teaching the real gospel. And it's the main point of chapter six, which is why Sam read the two bookends. It is what Paul chooses to say first and last in the letter. It is that importance. And so to be fit for purpose, a local church must guard and teach the simple biblical gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners against false ideas and teaching. It must guard that real gospel against everything else. Who says? Not me, not even the apostle, but Christ through his appointed messenger, the apostle Paul. Jesus says to his local church, I want you to hold fast to the fact that I came into this world to save sinners. Now, does it matter that much? What is at stake? Well, what's at stake is salvation and eternity. Anything that distracts from the true biblical gospel, anything that distorts the true biblical gospel is terribly dangerous. I said it in this pointed way in the first service. You as parents have a responsibility to teach your children the gospel. How dangerous is it if you teach them another gospel? It matters for life and eternity. People can lose their life. They can lose their eternal salvation. Now, intuitively, we sense, and we are wired this way, that to speak in such terms, to call teaching that distracts from or distorts the true biblical gospel of sinners saved, to call that false teaching is unloving. I mean, we are wired to think that. Is it really unloving to rescue someone from danger? Is it really unloving to warn, to exhort, to plead that people will not distract people from or distort the gospel message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? Is it unloving to say to people that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and they need to repent and turn to Christ if 
another message which might be more palatable will not save them for eternity. Which is more loving? Which is more loving? Now, I've divided the passage into three. Actually, it does divide into three. Sometimes we preachers are accused of being obsessed with the number three. Uh, You'll see the headings on the service sheet. Firstly, Paul's charge to Timothy. Now, the word charge is from the passage, and Paul speaks certainly strongly to Timothy. Read with me from verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And that is strong. It is direct. Paul charges Timothy. And what is Paul's motivation in speaking so directly to Timothy, his son in the faith? And what is Paul's motivation in encouraging Timothy in turn to speak so directly, to charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine? Why would I be direct with you as small group leaders? Why would I be direct with my fellow elders? Why would Sam and Rog and the elders be direct with me? Why would they charge me and why would we charge each other to hold fast to this? Verse 5, there it is in black and white. The aim of our charge is love. There it is. And so we are disarmed from how we are hardwired. The aim of the charge, which is the strongest possible thing, is love. Love is the motivation. It is the loving thing to do, to expose and oppose this kind of false teaching. The aim of our charge is love. Let me read on verse 5. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these. Now, what is Paul referring to? What does he mean by swerving from these? Well, I think he means that the people in the church who were teaching these things were swerving from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And what Paul has in mind here, I think, is the connection between the content of the false teaching, this different doctrine, this different gospel message, and the connection between that and the Christian character are those who are teaching it. Now, you know that's true. When you're out of sorts with the Lord, when you're struggling, when you're not fighting sin, when you're not battling, when you're not alert to your conscience, is your evangelism better or worse? Is your commitment to disciple people keener or dull? And when a Christian leader, a Christian teacher loses, loses their deep personal conviction that they are a forgiven sinner, that the greatest need they ever faced up to in life was their need of forgiveness. When a Christian leader or small group leader or preacher forgets that the most glorious truth they have ever known is that forgiveness is not only possible in Christ, but offered to them, and that 
Christ has opened their heart to receive it. When a Christian leader or teacher loses that deep personal conviction of sins forgiven and of the need for daily repentance for progress in the Christian life, when that conviction is lost, then the message begins to be distorted and diluted. That's what I think Paul is alluding to here, I think. We get another hint of it in verse 7 when he says they make confident assertions. Confident assertions are not the same as clear gospel convictions. Clear gospel convictions are born of a humble heart that is broken by a deep personal consciousness of the personal need of the message you teach. It's true, and I hope I always believe this, were it not for the grace of the gospel in my life, I would have nothing to say to you. Now, glance forward to verses 18 to 20, the other bookend of chapter 1. Let's read them. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, and here we go again. It's another charge. And I think probably Paul feels that Timothy feels the heat of this. And so he says, this charge I trust to you, Timothy, my child. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. What are the prophecies previously made about Timothy? Probably what Paul refers to in 2 Timothy and let me just quote from there. I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. Probably Paul is referring to the discernment of the apostles in setting apart Timothy as a key leader. The prophecies previously made about you, Timothy, that you are clear, that you are strong, that you are gifted. Back to 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. It's that spirit of power and love and self-control, Timothy, that you need now to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, there's a little cameo of real Christian leadership. Spiritual warfare, holding faith, with a good conscience. Spiritual warfare, not all of the time. Let's not be paranoid. But not sometimes, much or most of the time. Now, if Paul's motivation in charging Timothy and encouraging him in turn to charge these false teachers, if Paul's motivation at the beginning of the chapter is love, the aim of our charge, remember, is love, that is because people's eternal salvation is at stake. Second half of verse 19, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. False teaching costs lives. Imagine Judgment Day when, as a preacher, and I will be held to more account than many of you, the Lord Jesus says to me, why did you teach them another gospel? And how would he say it? He'll rebuke me, but he will be devastated. 
that people couldn't repent and believe because they never heard the gospel. Makes me shudder to think of how I'll face him. Now, looking at these verses together, 1 to 7 and 18 to 20, and I've run with the grain of Paul's writing what I've said. Let me say this, though. Think, look at them together. What must we never do? The answer to that question is think that this could not happen to us as a church in terms of what we teach. After all, this church in which we sit was shut down because there was no gospel. Do not think that it might not be shut down again because there is no gospel. We can't determine the future beyond our lifetimes, but we can determine the present. When we have been stewarded and entrusted with this church family, Are we prone as teachers, small group leaders, disciples, parents to be diverted from the true biblical gospel of sinners saved? Is it possible that we could distort that? Absolutely. False teaching usually starts as sound teaching. In a church teaching a gospel that Christ came into the world to save sinners, plus something else or minus something else, almost always started as Christ came into the world to save sinners. A gospel that has become grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, plus some kind of special revelation or special ministry or special vision or special agenda, often started as the gospel, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And so we are not immune from the risk. What is the inoculation you need in your arm? What is the inoculation your elders, your ministers need in the arm? The inoculation is godliness, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's striking that one of the most common words in 1 Timothy is conscience. And are we prepared out of love and because eternal issues are at stake to call false teaching false teaching and challenge it? The Bible charges us to do that. And it's down to each one of us. Look at the Bible when you are being taught. I bet you I could uh, persuade you by preaching what you would think would be a profound and moving sermon that wasn't quite the gospel or wasn't quite from the Bible. I bet you many of you at the door would say it was marvelous which is why you have the Bibles open on your laps. Is what he is teaching what it says. When someone says something in a small group that's unbiblical, what do we always uh, intuitively want to say? That's interesting. Or I hadn't thought of that. Or that's an interesting perspective. But as a small group leader, do you love them enough, if they are a new Christian or not yet a Christian, to say, where do you get that from? Where is it in the passage? Where is it in the Bible? Are you asking those that you know and trust and love, 
what they are listening to. You've got to cut us preachers some slack. Any of you spend your working life walking to work listening to spectacular preachers on your podcast and come and hear me on a Sunday. Are you sure? Are you careful? Are you asking one another what you're listening to? The internet is wonderful and dangerous in every realm of life and in this one too. Take the Bible seriously. It teaches us the real gospel. And do not be fooled by the myth that, quote, it is just a matter of interpretation. There are some things in the Bible that are unclear, but not the gospel. You try to persuade yourself in your heart that 1 Timothy is vague as a letter. It's crystal clear that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now, let's take a little bit of time, uh, secondly, to consider the false ideas and teaching that Paul is referring to. That's the second title in the notes, False Ideas and Teaching in the Church. Now, false teaching is like a slippery eel. Have you ever tried to hold an eel? No, probably. (laughs) But you can imagine what it might be like. Not a good illustration. It would slip out of your hands. It's very hard to pin down. In the dim and distant past, I did a PhD, and one of the chapters in it was to try to examine and understand third-way politics. Some of you are too young to understand what that is. It was the politics of Antti Giddens and Anthony Giddens, Tony Blair. Not left, not right, not center-left, not center-right. Just a kind of political synthesis that everyone bought into. Try and pin down the principles that underlie it. You can't. It's a culture of spin, a culture of truth, where everyone finds something that says, that's truth, it must be real, must be true. Read with me what this false teaching is like, 6 to 11. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about what they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And it seems that there were some people in the church and we're trying to work out what's going on here, in the church where Timothy was the minister, who were teaching in the Old Testament law in a way that distorted the purpose of the law. The law is good in the Old Testament, but what it was designed to do was lead people, lead you and I, when you run through lists like that, and there are many others, to conclude at the end of a list, I cannot do these things. I need a Savior. The law exposes our sin so that we cry out for a Savior. And what these people were teaching is the law demonstrates how righteous I really am. Look how good we are. We are above the need for a deep-rooted, spirit-given conviction of repentance and forgiveness. Now, I think that's what Paul is referring to 
where I get that from is the middle of verse 9, uh, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just. I think he's saying the law is not for the righteous. Jesus did not come for the righteous. He came for sinners like us. What else is going on in this false teaching? Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. Verse 4, he refers to myths and endless genealogies, stewardship from God, uh, speculations rather, as opposed to the stewardship from God that is by faith. Myths and endless genealogies, speculations, stuff that is not at the heart of the gospel. Let me encourage you and warn you not to be lured into spending your Christian life on the latest thing. There's not enough time for that. Your job and my job is to focus on the stewardship that is given to us from God. Now, in truth, it is hard to pin down what false teaching is, but I wonder if that is the point. False teaching is hard to pin down because it is laced with sound bites of truth, half-truths, sometimes nearly whole truths. It often sounds profound, almost always. It sounds persuasive. Why does it sound persuasive to you? And why is it persuasive to me as a preacher to preach this kind of stuff, half-truths, false doctrine. Just flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Two Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. 2 Timothy is the next letter in the New Testament. Paul writes, I charge you, poor Timothy has been charged so many times, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. That's pretty scary, isn't it, for every preacher, every small group leader? I charge you, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Here's the deal. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. False teaching is typically popular, gains a wide hearing and following. People like to listen to it and people like to teach it because we all like to be affirmed. I do. It rarely questions or demands of people, false teaching, and often turns the teachers into personalities or cult figures. What is authentic is sober-mindedness, enduring suffering, doing the work of an evangelist, and fulfilling or discharging the duties of your ministry. Much less glamorous, much tougher, but real. Back to 1 Timothy. Let's turn now as we conclude to Paul's gospel example and convictions, 1, 12 through 17. In the heart of the chapter, Paul, in contrast to the false teaching and false teachers, sets out his own gospel convictions and gospel example. And remember, this is the teaching and example of Christ's apostle. Who would you follow? Who should we follow? God's apostle Paul or some self-appointed apostle in the church who gains notoriety for a time and then fades away? 
Now, you might think that in referring to himself as an example to follow, that Paul is being arrogant, just like the false teachers he exposes for their confident assertions. He is guilty of the same. Now, Paul does make confident assertions. He's really confident that he is the foremost, the worst sinner. Paul is confident that he desperately needed the saving grace of the gospel. Now, that is a very different order of confident assertion. Now, preachers and small group leaders and youth club leaders can turn that on like a tap. I could pretend to you as I stand behind the Lord's table that I am deeply moved. But you will know over time whether those in Christian leadership are genuinely deeply moved by what they say and what they do and how they live, and whether they are loving enough to say to others, why are you teaching that? Let's read 12 to 17, great verses. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me is the foremost Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, there it is in black and white. What is the true gospel that we must guard and teach? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the true gospel, and there is no other. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, think of a gospel book like Mark. How does it begin? John the Baptist, the greatest prophet and preacher who ever lived, bar Jesus, preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus then appeared his opening words, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the heart of his message? Chapter 2 of Mark, verse 5, your sins are forgiven. Chapter 2 of Mark, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is what Paul gave his life to teaching. That is the message that changed the world, and that is the message that left Paul at the end of his ministry 
completely abandoned. Remember these haunting words in 2 Timothy, Timothy, everyone has deserted me. Will you? There's a great reminder that we must never look to see the fruit of faithfulness in our own lifetime. We might be privileged to see that, but our job is to be stewards. And what is so striking about these verses in the middle of the chapter is that Paul's life illustrates what the gospel is really about. Paul's life story illustrates the need of forgiveness. He was a, uh, he was a, a nightmare. Paul's life story illustrates the grace of forgiveness. Paul's life story illustrates the perfect patience, mercy, and overflowing grace of God. Think of it like this. Paul, the greatest evangelist in history, his life story illustrates the message he preached, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But there's something more. Paul's life story not only illustrates the message he preached, it authenticates it and kept him preaching the true gospel when all around him people were distracted from and distorting a gospel message. Paul never, ever lost sight of the amazing grace of forgiveness that he himself had received. I don't think there was a day in Paul's ministry where he was unmoved by the cross. There was not a day in Paul's ministry when he uh, forgot that core message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save him. There was not a day when Paul was not undone by mercy, as the song puts it, and less speechless. Not a day when he didn't watch wide-eyed at the cost. Not a day when he ever lost the wonder of the cross. Paul never lost the wonder of the grace that saved him, the worst of sinners. And if we live day by day in that conscious knowledge of being forgiven sinners— that is how we will keep on speaking the message to forgiven sinners of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's whole ministry was marked by suffering and struggle. He achieved little notoriety in his lifetime. All deserted him. All deserted him in his life. The Apostle Paul would not get the job of minister in many churches today. Who would you follow? Whose podcast will you listen to? Christ's Apostle? The apostle appointed by Jesus. And so to be fit for purpose, a local church must guard and teach the simple biblical gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners against false ideas and teaching. Every preacher, every elder, every small group leader, every youth leader, every person in this church has an important part to play in that. And we do so, why? Because we love each other. Parents, we love our children, so we teach the truth. Ministers, elders, we love the people, so we teach the truth. We hold each other accountable. And real love is love that is concerned for the eternal salvation of people's souls. And how appropriate it is. And once again, God manages the term card better than we ever try. How appropriate it is that we gather around the Lord's table and what does the Lord's table encourage us to do? Think of the liturgy that we use. 
every time you eat this bread and drink this wine, you remember, every time you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim. What will keep us speaking this message that we keep remembering? Hold on to the cross, and that is how we hold out that message to the world. Let's pray together. Lord, it is a strong, strong start to this letter. The Apostle Paul is charging us, and yet he does so out of a deep love for Timothy, and we hear that as the love of Christ through his Apostle for us, to keep on holding fast to the true gospel. Help us, Lord, to grow up together in unity and love over these coming weeks and months as we study this great letter. Help us to be fit for purpose. Help us to fit each other for purpose. And sober us, Lord, now as we come to the Lord's table, that we might be undone and that we might not make confident assertions about what we know or what others are like. But you might well up in us confident convictions that we are the worst of sinners and that your mercy has gloriously forgiven us. So would we speak of anything else than that? Help us not to distort or distract people from this truth. And give us minds and hearts that concentrate now on the death of your Son. Take us by your Spirit to the very foot of the cross at Calvary. For Jesus' sake, amen.